0: Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, who are hard at work helping small business owners fight public policy battles so they can grow their small businesses into bigger ones. And that's the Job Creators Network, presenting our American Dreamers series, as always. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of Tom Sadeka the CEO of Precision Payroll of America, and the guy who happens to do our payroll.
1: Both my parents are from Lithuania. Lithuania is one of the Baltic states, and the Baltic states, of course, got caught up in the crossfire between Germany and then Russia. And ultimately, Russia took it over and made it a Soviet satellite. And of course, when the communists were taken over, they targeted certain people that should not you know continue to be in that country or exist so one of the targets my mom's brother was a a freedom fighter what they would do is they would try and disrupt the communication lines that were set up if there's supply trains coming in they would try and take down the railways intercept communications oftentimes also attack and take on garrisons of Russians and to fight them, to battle them, they would have resisted in every way possible. But they were sort of the the, the military resistance of what was left, because they, obviously after the war, the army was decimated, and they would hide out in hills and forests, and then plan their strikes, you know, strike, and then return back to hiding. And of course, you had people in communities feeding them and helping them out, and um, and That went on a long, long time, but really to no avail. I mean, Latvia, Estonia, I mean, Poland—you think all those nations? They all had people, you know, resisting, but and the Soviets came in in a, in a big, big force. You know, they had they had little little battles. They they would win little battles, but they, you know, on a on a glide path though of losing the war. And the freedom fighters, when they were discovered what their identities were, the Russians would go after and wipe out the entire family and go outside the nuclear family and just take them out. Either uh, executions, um, exportation to Siberia, whatnot. And at one point he did get cornered in the woods, in the forest, and his team ended up taking their own lives and destroying all, all of their identities as best they can. And yet they still discovered who they were, so that so the family had to flee. Dad's side, my grandmother owned like three or four restaurants, and they were actually pretty well-to-do, and what's interesting was that my grandmother was the entrepreneur, and my grandfather was uh, hardworking, mechanically inclined, so they had a beautiful apartment in the main city, and about an 800 acre plantation in the country. And my dad grew up in the country with a seamstress, a tutor, I mean, a completely different life. Well, and of course, anybody with any type of wealth education also had to go. You know, anybody with any any type of positive influence, so they had to run. And they ended up, both families ended up in displaced person camps in Germany and Bavaria. And then after about four and a half, five years, they came to the States. My mom's family came in through Ellis Island and my dad's family came in through New Orleans. And back in those days, you had to be sponsored, checked for health, because they were turning people away that had any type of disease. And be sort of approved or or given knowledge that, that they're gonna work and contribute to society
2: and both of his parents' families ended up in a place that some call Little Lithuania, which is the largest Lithuanian community outside of Lithuania, and is more commonly referred to as Chicago.
1: I was raised speaking the language at home, understanding the history. We would have Saturday school that we would have at home that my mom would teach. And it was all about Lithuanian history, the language. Boy, we had to turn in writing assignments, we had to do reading assignments, get a chapter from a book, from a history book. It was pretty formal, and as a kid, it was like, are you kidding me? I could be out playing football or baseball, and in fact, I gotta sit here and tell my friends, I got Lithuanian school, like, what? But as you look back now, it's like, wow, I'm glad we did that, you know, I'm glad we did that. Growing up, learning about all the different stories of the harrowing escapes. My mom and grandma were dive-bombed, and they were hanging laundry. Both my grandmother and my mom saw the face of the bomber in the plane. And they just they made like an eye contact with them, and they just thought, God help us. And there was just like a big crater uh, where they were standing. They were amazed they were alive, and their laundry was just everywhere. Incredible stories like that of the family coming over. And so growing up, we were instilled with a an appreciation for freedom, an appreciation for faith, an appreciation for the United States. History has so much value. One as a as a process to understand of where we are today, but also to avoid catastrophes that occurred in the past and understand how those occurred it's another way of saying if you forget history you're deemed to repeat it one of the things that i started doing was when my daughter was born and when she hit her sort of cognitive years at about three or four every fourth of july i would read the declaration of independence and the constitution and that helps us not only understand but really appreciate because America is a divine providence yeah very likely
0: very likely indeed and we're listening to Tom Sadeka and his story an American dreamer's story for sure here on our American stories we continue after these commercial messages American Stories, and we return to the story of Tom Sadeka, the son of Lithuanian immigrants and the CEO of Precision Payroll of America, and the guy who happens to do Our American Stories payroll.
1: Lithuania was the last European country to accept Christianity. Early on, one of the kings, in wanting to get his approval from Rome, Said okay, I'll you know I'll become a Catholic. I'll become a Christian, and that was somewhere around the year 1000. Prior to that, they were pagan. Let's see, oak trees was a big god or presence in their lives, fire. And what's interesting is that in Lithuania, outside of this town called Šalė, there is what's known the Hill of Crosses, probably. Eight or 900 A.D., some folks who were following the Christian faith, when their people went to fight at wars and they were lost, the community would plant little crosses on this hill. And over time, the crosses would build, would build, would build. And there were probably, come 1945, 1,500 crosses on this hill. And the Russians also found out that it was a symbol, not only of faith, but of honor for the fallen, and they weren't too happy with that. The communists would close churches, get rid of Bibles, because the higher power is the state. So they would get rid of the crosses. But to their amazement and frustration, the crosses would return, a different set of crosses, and sometimes even more. So they would come through again and burn it, and this would went on for decades. Finally, in 1985, the Russians are like, forget it, we can't do this, we're just gonna let this place be, because it just keeps coming back. Today, it's estimated there's between 900,000 and 1.1 million crosses there. If you Google the hill of crosses, you won't believe it. So when we went on the visit, we went to see where our family had placed their crosses, but if you could remember, (laughs) my mom had us walking around for a while, like, hey, we know it's here somewhere, but, The crosses are piled on top of crosses, on top of crosses, on top of crosses, where it's like, holy cow. So my daughter placed a cross and she placed it on a wooden, and I don't want to say totem, but it's like a totem, but of uh, Jesus. And we took a picture of it. So like, when we come back, we'll know where to look. And what was cool was the irony of the last European country to fully embrace christianity has got such a phenomenal sight with such a phenomenal story i think god's got uh well benevolence and a great sense of humor for sure and you know and i guess he doesn't care how you get there which is funny it is funny how it works that way sometimes
2: and that's exactly
1: how tom's career would work out too I always liked sales. I liked talking to people. I like to help people. And I had a job, this is going back into the mid-'80s, but I was selling copiers. That was not fun. I, and back in those days, you had to lug your own copiers on these gurneys, and I probably tore three suits, suit pants, you know. I'm doing demos with my suit coat tied around my my waist so that my... Back end is not exposed, and I cold called a place that was a headhunter and asked them if they wanted a new copier. They said no. They asked me if I wanted a new job, and I said, "What do you got?"
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I got uh, presented to Chicago's first payroll company. It was accepted was an opportunity to start selling, and I made rookie of the year, which was exciting. I won a trip to Acapulco. But what I found was, dealing with payroll is, there's always an answer. That at the end of the day, you gotta balance. And there's always an answer, you can find it. Much like accounting, if done properly, you can always find an answer. So there is a sense of settlement and solution. You know, a lot of businesses don't have, and life in general has so many gray areas, that it's nice to sort of dwell in the world of black and white of, You're in balance or you're out of balance. And if you're out of balance, let's troubleshoot. And so as time went on, I got involved as the liaison to operations from the sales group. And, you know, I liked the idea of getting behind a good product and service, getting other people behind it, maybe an inclination towards leadership. And so as time went on, then I got an opportunity to buy into uh, a new company, uh, help grow it, sell it, and then got an opportunity to come here. And when you get into an ownership and a leadership role, you all of a sudden have got so many different dimensions of opportunities to help. So one, I'm so grateful for the chance that I've been given and the opportunities that are made as well as gifted, you know, and hard work will present opportunities for you too. Whereas, hey, if you never went to that building, you never would have met that person that then led to, you know, I had a client I brought on, two employees, IT technology firm, loved our service, and people are like, why don't you just waste your time with it? I'm like, it was a referral. If somebody is coming to us because of a kind word, we're, we're bringing them on. Well, they loved our service so much, they told their CPA firm. Their CPA firm came on with us and brought 30 other clients. So this two-man payroll ends up netting 30 companies with over 1,000 employees. So you never know where it leads. We had an incredible quarter. We picked up some very large clients. 1,200 employees, 5,000 employees, 600 employees, and all that came to us by way of referral. We bring on over 300 new clients a year and they all come by way of referral. But Then the other opportunity in a management or leadership role is you have the opportunity to help people that you work with to grow. To have that opportunity to find a person, place, or thing better off than you have met them. A lot of times people they try to classify services as just commodities. Oh just you know go for the price and all that. And Sometimes we'll encounter a client they will be like you're only 10% less and and the whole focus of the conversation becomes cost and you're like okay let me tell you about our service because if it's only cost you're not gonna keep that client very long because the next guy that's gonna come in and say oh yeah I'll cut my price by 30 percent to save you 10 percent from these guys sure we'll do it it could be a commodity until you have an error and when you need service And now, some of my larger competitors, you're talking to folks overseas.
2: And we all know how that can be, calling AT&T or Comcast.
1: And I have to tell you, I guess that's okay because a cell phone works similarly in Manila or Mumbai as it does here in the United States. Payroll does not. The United States which has federal, state, and local jurisdictions, is the most convoluted, laden with mines for an employer to screw up on. I was bringing on a church in uh, New Jersey a couple years ago. Their incumbent was one of the large firms. They were looking at the largest firm and us. And she said, now I have to tell you, your competitors, I've got a 24 hour phone call. I said, yeah, I think after 5 p.m. Eastern time, I said, those calls go overseas. And that's okay as long as the people are trained. Our approach is that when you process your payroll and you review your documentation, which is almost instantaneous, when you're done at 2 p.m., you're done. You shouldn't have any questions. And I said, and if you do, my cell phone's on my business card. Fraser Thomas, he did um, Garfield Goose in the Morning, and Sunday afternoons he would have family classics, which was they would show the classic movies. And he would be there in, like, this library, and this classical music would start. And always on a Sunday afternoon, when that hit, it reminded me that Monday was come the next day. I'd be dreading it, like, I got school the next day. So I thought, you know what? when I have my company I want to look forward to Mondays as much as I look forward to Fridays. so what have I got to do what you know what has got to be there to have people want to come to work and a lot of it is giving them the opportunity giving them the room to fail you know, from a management style certainly celebrating the victories correcting the errors and proving and getting better and just keeping a very upbeat, optimistic outlook as well as environment.
0: And great job as always, Alex. Tom Sadeka's story, an American dreamer's story here on our American stories. And by the way, they're a terrific company. If you need payroll done, we use their service and just the best that can be. Again, Precision Payroll of America is the company. Tom Sadeka's story. Here on our American Stories, and we continue with our American Stories, and our next story. Well, it's about a man whose legend has reached Chuck Norris Heights. In fact, the man behind all those farcical facts about pop culture icon Chuck Norris wrote another book titled Chuck Norris vs. Mr. T. 400 Facts About the Baddest Dudes in the History of Ever. And on this day in 1952, Mr. T was born. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. You can go to learn all the things that matter in life And all the things that are beautiful in life If you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you And no, this isn't George Washington And no, it's not the first time man ever stepped foot on the moon But sometimes history is just, well Cultural stuff, fun stuff Like Mr. T Here's Greg Hengler
4: with the story Mr. T is, without a doubt One of the most recognizable pop culture curiosities of the 80s Right up there with the Rubik's Cube, breakdancing, and Pac-Man. Bursting onto the scene as villainous boxer Clubber Lang in Rocky 3 in which he ad-libbed his famous catchphrase.
5: No, I don't hate that boy, but I pity the fool. And I will destroy any man who tries to take what I got. What's your prediction for the fight, then?
6: Prediction? Yes, prediction.
4: Pain. He went Reagan-era viral with the A-Team.
5: What you doing, sucker? What's going on here? This road leads directly to the airport, Hannibal. This road is nowhere near the airport.
4: The popular TV show launched the former Chicago nightclub bouncer to a surreal level of fame that spawned a Saturday morning cartoon, action figures, and even a ridiculously sweet breakfast cereal. Mr. T is the youngest son in a family of 12 children and grew up in Chicago's projects. Having been expelled from university after his first year, Mr. T enlisted in the U.S. Army, serving in the military police corps, where he excelled. After his discharge, he tried to make it as a professional American football player, but failed to make the team due to a knee injury. In the 70s, he started working as a bouncer, during which time he created the Mr. T persona and started cladding himself in gold jewelry, usually left behind by customers at the end of the night. Well, enough with the jibba jabba. Here's Mr. T with his story, starting with how he was discovered, how he got
5: his name, and why the Mohawk. We got to get a a credit to God. See, I'm blessed by, I'm a, I'm I'm a Christian, you know, so God, God found me, you know, God arranged things to me or let's go back. All right. Uh, when I wasn't bodyguarding, I used to work at this disco in Chicago called Dean bats. I was sort of a bouncer. People used to say, and then, uh, the NBC had this contest called the toughest bouncer in America. Humbly. I won the contest when I say humbly, I won it, even though it was called the toughest bouncer in America, I did not win that, I won it two years in a row. I didn't win that contest because I was the roughest, the toughest, or the baddest. I won that contest again because the cause, C-A-U-S-E, the cause that I represented was far more greater than anybody else's cause. I told my pastor at my church, Cosmopolitan Community Church on the south side of Chicago, I said, Pastor Hardy, they are having a contest, and when I win. I'm gonna give you the money so you can buy clothes and food for less fortunate people in the community. So I won two years in a row. I gave a check both times to my, to my church. And then they say that Sylvester Stallone was at home at the time watching the program. Then he saw me, I had my earrings and my, uh, my tuxedo, each bounce I have a tuxedo on. Then he saw me. He said, that guy's different and he can talk. Then they called me out. At first they called me and, and they sent me a script. Then that came out to Hollywood audition for the role, had to beat out 1,500 black guys for the part. But I like to think that I got it because I freely gave the money and everything I give, you know, it comes back to me, you know. And so I never look back, you know, I think because, like I always say, I say, I get so much because I give so much. I don't give looking for nothing in return. I'm giving, thanking God for allowing me to be here, thanking God. Sure, I'm tough on all that. I'm tough because I condition my body to be tough, you know. And um, when I was nine years old, I got seven brothers and four sisters. We was on welfare food stamps. I drew a picture when I was in school of a house and my mother and I showed it to my mother. I said, Mama, one of these days I'm gonna be big and strong. I'm gonna be a football player and a boxer. I'm gonna buy you a beautiful house, mama, and I'm gonna buy you pretty dresses. My mother was a maid. My mother used to go in the suburbs and scrub white people's floors. She was not allowed to go in the front door, had to go in the back door. I'm not a racist. I'm telling you what, where I come from, but my mother never taught us hate. She said, son, you do your best. You work hard. If you want something, work hard, save your money and get it. So I told my mother, I said, I'm do this here. Then I said, mama, I'm going to be a football player in a box. I'm going to buy you a beautiful house. And then she hugged me and said, if that's the Lord's willing, it was and is the Lord's willing. You know, like I tell people crime and drugs was over me, under me and around me, but crime and drugs will never in me. Why? I wasn't afraid to get a whooping. Wasn't afraid to go to jail. I love my mother too much. You know, I'd rather die and burn in hell than to bring dishonor or disrespect to my mother. I'm nothing but a big, overgrown, tough, God-fearing, butt-kicking mama's boy. My proudest accomplishment is fulfilling my dream. Remember I said I told my mother going to buy a house in pretty dresses. So after I did Rocky, I saved all my money, bought my mother a house in pretty dresses. Okay, back to how I got the name Mr. T. See. As as I tell everybody, as a black man growing up in white society, I watched my father being called boy. My father is a minister. He preached the gospel. He baptized me. I was four years old, and I I used to, you know, take the Bible up to the thing and open it, and he preached anyway. And I I watched my father being disrespected, called boy. I watched one of my brothers, who was a a Marine, come back from Vietnam with his Marine uniform on, and guys call him boy. So I questioned the fact: What do a black man have to do before he's given the respect as a man? So when I was eighteen years old, old enough to fight and die for my country and be drafted. I said I'm old enough to be called a man. So when I became 18 years old, I self-ordained myself Mr. T. So the first word out of everybody's mouth would be Mr. That's a sign of respect. T because it, it, just, it took my to our last name. I was born Lawrence Turo. So that's why I changed my name to Mr. T. And, and I tell people, you know, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to the Mohegan Indians, even though we call it a Mohawk. Truthfully, it's called the Mandinka Cut because there's a tribe in Africa called the Mandinka Warriors in the west coast of, 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 of Africa, in the country of Mali. They wear their hair this way.
4: Following Hurricane Katrina in 2005, Mr. T retired his massive gold chains because, as he said, I told myself, no, T, you can never wear your gold again. It's an insult to God. Mr. T substituted the chains with a stars and stripes bandana. Here's why he dons this patriotic
5: headgear and what lever he pulls at the ballot box. I wear the stars and stripes because it's my way of paying the, the, the veterans back. It's my way of honoring the veterans. And I'm a, I'm a veteran myself. You know, I'm in the nation. I was in the National Guard, military police. I got four brothers, Uh, th- uh one in the Marine, three in the Army. See, like people joke me, this is who I vote for. I said, I voted for Jesus because you can't vote a man, can't vote them out because uh, it's a politics. They're going to say one thing, all of them, black white, whatever politics my mother told me. She said, son, where a man stand depends on where he sits. So I've seen politicians come, vote for me this and that, I'll do this. That. Everybody's going to promise a good game, but in reality they don't, you know. So I'm going to stick with God when mother, when I was raised, when I was a little kid, mother told me to pray. And I've been praying ever since then, you know, and it ain't, it ain't failed me yet. I prayed when they get me out the ghetto, prayed to be a good kid, prayed that I don't get involved in crime and all that stuff. You know, I go to the hospital. Mother asked me to pray for their children. They don't ask me because I'm a celebrity. They know because I believe in God. I serve God. It's not a phony act with me. I don't get with God to try to impress somebody to fool somebody like a lot of, of celebrities do. You catch them doing wrong. Then they want to get the Bible and all that. I've been with the Bible. I've been taking food down to the homeless.
4: Simply said, Mr. T Is the real deal and a man of his word. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And my goodness, what a story!
0: Great job as always to Greg Hengler. A great God story, Mr. T's story. And by the way, that whole idea of watching his father get called boy and a Marine Corps vet get called boy because of the color of his skin, the sad part of our nation's history. But my goodness, his response to that prejudice, that's what we love talking about here on this show, because that we can control. Mr. T's story, what a story it is, here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories, and we love telling stories about music here on the show, and particularly about the stories of songs. And this, well, this is a good one. For a very brief period in 1979, the Knack looked like the future of rock and roll. It was the summer of the infamous Disco Demolition Night at Comiskey Park in Chicago, and many old-school rock fans were ready to embrace a new band. Into this void stepped the neck and their song, My Sharona, which reached number six on Rolling Stone's top ten one-hit wonders of all time. Here's Greg Hangler with this story of a song.
4: Even now, multiple decades after the biggest single of 1979, Sharona Elprin can't escape it. Almost any time someone hears my name, Miss Elprin says, they say, oh, like my Sharona? And then they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that. You probably hear that all the time. They have no idea. She's not just a Sharona. She's the Sharona. The object of the knack's bopping 1979 hit, My Sharona. The band's lead singer, Doug Figer, wrote the song's lustful lyrics about her when she was 17 and he was 26. Here's Doug Figer.
2: It is a song that has a life of its own. It's not just a song. It's a cultural icon, if you will.
4: The song became Billboard's number one single of 1979. Here's the next bassist, Prescott Niles. People do know the name of the band. But my experience
7: is they go, yeah, um, you know, My Sharona. Oh, yeah, that's my favorite
4: song and my kids and my wife. And, you know, and all of a sudden, everybody's got a story about My Sharona. My Sharona has never gone away. Ben Stiller built a memorable scene around the song in his 1994 directorial debut, Reality Bites, claiming it for Generation X. Nirvana did a grunge version. And the tune was reported to be on President George W. Bush's iPod in 2005. It's an odd kind of fame being the person in the song.
3: Here's Sharona Elprin. People stay oh, like my Sharona. And very, very often I say, yes, I'm the same girl that the song was written about and they can't believe it. <laughs> Lead singer
4: Doug Feiger explains how My Sharona all started with lead guitarist, Burton Avere. Burton had a
2: drum figure that he played me. Now, he's since told me that it was only months, but I seem to remember it was a couple of years before we actually wrote the song. He, you know, beat it out on his, on his legs, showed me this drum beat. It was before he told me, you know, what the riff was going to be even. He just said, "I have this beat."
6: Here's Burton. I'd been listening a lot to this Second Elvis Costello album and there was this 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 appeal of this kind of demented approach to rock and roll, you know, just kind of balls to the wall and slamming. And I had this riff, and I brought it into one of our rehearsals, and I just started playing it. I didn't even say, you know, um, hey, here's something. I just started playing the riff, and uh, I was telling Bruce I imagined um, no cymbals, just kind of a, a Tom Snare kind of thing, and he came up with the riff.
4: Here's drummer Bruce Gary. My roots are very much surf music. My first band was a surf band, and there was surf
0: stomps. And I can show you, you know, a a surf stomp is like a flam thing. It's like a Which is,
4: is, uh, basically, he wanted it to be, you know, kind of And I interjected the flam thing. Which gave it its own characteristic to it.
7: Here it is! The only My Schroner rehearsal tape in existence. It's Burton's Lick, of course. This is what we fueled everything off of the main riff. We have been playing around locally for for a couple of months, and there were a couple of girls that used to, actually, three of them, we used to, uh, kind of affectionately call them the knackettes, you know? They used to come down to hear us perform and one of them was named Sharona. And my lead singer, Doug, had quite a crush on Sharona. I, I
2: had to have her. It
7: consumed me. <laughs>
2: uh, she was
3: my muse. She, she compelled me. Here again is Sharona Alpern. One time I went, and I remember, I think it was Burton or Doug, or someone was like, should we play it? Should we play it for her? And I didn't even know what they were talking about. I was sitting on the couch. It could have been anything. It was a normal day like any other day. And then the next next memory I have, I was in my car thinking, did I just hear a song with my name in it? Was that my name in the song? And it was in my head. But uh, right away, I just, I couldn't believe that there was a song with my name in it.
2: It was recorded at MCA Whitney Studios on Glendale Boulevard in uh, Glendale. It's not there anymore.
4: We decided to record it there with Mike Chapman.
0: We felt it was a, uh, better than doing it in Hollywood because there's no distractions there. It's like that studio's set in an area where there's really nothing else, so we were able to concentrate more in there.
4: Here's producer Mike Chapman.
0: But they, they played the
2: song right there and then, and I said, well, stop. And they said, what, you don't like it? And I said, no, of course I like it. I said, that's a number one, absolutely You've got to know you have a number one
6: song. You ready? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. He said, start the tape. (laughs) I I don't mean that in a sliding way. Uh, Mike's contribution was saying, I think the way you should record this album is as if you were playing your club set.
2: Uh, Probably my main contribution was to leave it alone, was to record it well and not mess around with it. Uh, And my job was to put it on tape and to make it sound the way it sounded when they did it live.
4: Within months of their live debut, popular club gigs on the Sunset Strip, as well as guest jams with musicians such as Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, and Ray Manzarek, led to the band being the subject of a record label bidding war. The band was pursued by ten record labels, but decided on going with Capitol Records. Here again is Burton.
6: When we got our record deal and the record was made, everybody knew, I mean, everybody from the start just knew "Sharon" was the song. But there were some, you know, second-guessers at the record company who were saying, well, you know, hard rock on the radio right now, And uh, they actually kind of did a little dance about maybe Sharona not being the first release, which was absurd, and we all knew it. So instead of saying, you don't know what you're talking about, we just kind of held our tongue, and uh, because the song did its work for itself, you know.
2: Here's Doug. They didn't release the single until two weeks after the album had been released. But the day the album was released to radio, My Sharona became the most added record as an album cut in the world. It went from from nobody ever having heard it to being in heavy rotation in one day. It was a phenomenon.
3: It was on every single minute, no matter where I went. The minute it was on the airplanes. Then I'd get off an airplane. I'd get in a limousine or a cab. It was in the limousine or a cab. I'd get to the hotel. It was in the hotel. We would go on vacation. The top 40 band who was playing in the lobby or in the piano bar played my Sharona. You couldn't escape it. At one time, I would turn it off sometimes. I even think that they might have made it music and dentist's office or in the grocery stores without the words. I got the girl.
2: Sharona did become my girlfriend. It took me a year, you know, after I wrote it took me a year she was she was you know very very she played very hard to get and uh, but we became uh, good friends and we lived together for three and a half years you know having it become a hit again in the 90s was a remarkable thing getting to tour america with a whole new audience of young kids that didn't no, it had been a hit 15 years earlier. That was remarkable. You know, and I still meet kids today, young people, you know, who were like 12 when it was a hit from Reality Bites, you know, and to them, it's their youth, and, and there are people, you know, my age who it was their youth too, because we all had that experience when,
7: when it first happened. And, and now I mean people play it, I mean, you know, all over the place. They play it at sporting events. So I think because of the youthfulness of it and because it's not so much restricted stylistically to the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, I just think it keeps reinventing itself and I'm for and I'm happy about that because it doesn't sound like it's 19, you know, it's this particular year. It's got a real uh, timelessness about it.
4: I'm Greg Hengler and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great work, as always, Greg. And what a story. And that song, well, once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head, whether you like it or not. It's stuck. And my goodness, to have a song written about you at that age. Doug Figer was 26, Sharona. Well, she was 17. She was my muse, because he ached. She compelled me, he said. Recorded in Glendale, California, not far from where my sister and dad and her husband live. My main contribution, said producer Mike Chapman, I left it alone. That's sometimes the hardest thing for a producer to do. The story of my Sharona, the story of a song, here on Our American Story. Stories, and today we get into the heart of the story of one of America's greatest storytellers. A lot of people don't know much about Mark Twain beyond the fact that their high school teachers compelled them to read The Adventures of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. But few of us know the story of how Mark Twain squandered away all of his money through a series of bad investments, then how he would dig himself out of debt. Today we have the author of the book Chasing the Last Laugh. Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. And it's by author Richard Zacks, who is a best-selling New York Times author, author of The Pirate Hunter, among many others. And thanks for joining us today, Richard. Uh, Great to be here. You bet. And, you know, I mentioned that uh, folks compelled us to read Mark Twain, and of all the things that we read that we were forced to read, this is one of the things most of us actually understood and loved. Before we even begin with the book, what is it about Mark Twain that you think connected to so many generations of readers?
8: I think it's his humor and his his uh, kind of child childlike wonder and uh, mixed with cynicism. I mean he did so many things his range as a writer is about the most extreme you can imagine to to make fun of religion and then to uh, celebrate uh, a runaway slave to i mean his it just boggles my mind. The more I read, the more I realized uh, how far he'd go in different directions and how human he was. I mean, how he he was able to pinpoint, you know, human emotions about about guilt and acceptance and generosity and greed and, you know, it's kind of you you if you paraphrase a Mark Twain story, it, it just kind of sits there and and you feel like an idiot, and then you read it and you realize. Oh, my God, the expressions that he came up with and the way he said it. And and it, it just feels, um, frankly, so American.
0: Yeah, and um, you know, Mark Twain's books can't be pitched. I mean, if he would to pitch his book, <laughs> right. it would not end well.
8: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I I was sort of surprised by that because, uh, you know, uh, we'll get to it later, but he, he winds up telling about 30 of his best stories during this Round the World Comedy Tour. And so occasionally I would just try out on Friends, just paraphrasing, what the thing was about, and you know, I might say it's, uh, oh, he stole a watermelon, and the watermelon was green, and he tried to make the uh, the farmer take it back, and it just it sounds idiotic, yeah. you know, it just doesn't kind of, you know, but when he tells it, it's just the most amazing story. So, or the jumping frog. I mean, when you, you know, I don't want to blow any punchlines, but but a lot of these, it, a lot of it's in the telling, and he's just a master.
0: Well, in fact, we're doing this summer. We're going to send a correspondent out for that frog jumping contest out in Calaveras County because Twain just understood the American psyche. He was like a almost a Tocqueville-type character. He understood the heartbeat of America and made us laugh about ourselves.
8: Well, what I think is great, since you did bring up the jumping frog, um, it's kind of a perfect segue, because pe- people didn't realize about the p- private Mark Twain. The private Mark Twain, I mean, that was the first story that put him on the map. That was the one that made the National Magazine. That's the one that got him his first book deal. And he understood gambling because he was an inveterate gambler. He was just so addicted to risk. And, you know, people, people write up the Mark Twain and they talk about literary this and that and, you know, uh, religion and King Leopold and all those other things. But this man loved to gamble, and he loved to gamble on pool, and he loved to play poker, and he would bet on things. And, and that's kind of what leads into my whole story because this side of his personality made him want to gamble on making huge amounts of money.
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. And by the way, gambling, for for those of us who like it, and I, I love a great poker game, America major. loves a great poker game, <laughs> but what do we love? It's not just the risk, Richard. It's the camaraderie. It's the jokes. It's the tells. It's the games and the gamesmanship. It basically amplifies all of the things in life, takes us out of our boring lives And it's almost a heightened reality that we wish we could live in more often.
8: Yeah, I agree with you, because all of life is some kind of risk. I mean, you just cross the street and you're risking. You drive 75 instead of 45, you're risking. But what I love, I did a piece a long time ago about a a bookmaker named Bob the Man Martin. And he said, the greatest thrill in life is winning a bet. The second greatest thrill is losing one. <laughs> it's so true. You know what I mean? Like people who don't gamble don't understand that. They think I'm just trying to like show off with some quote or something, but it's you want action. I mean, I sometimes only bet like five bucks on a, on a football game, and then I can watch Northern Illinois play <laughs> – Duquesne, and I care about that game. That's so true.
0: That is so So, true. And
8: people just don't get that. And Twain, oh, God, he really got it. He was addicted.
0: Yeah, and some people can get in trouble from gambling, and some people can just enjoy it. Well, the same with alcohol. And so it's like all things in the end. One or two more things. I mean, we're obviously spending some time on the book, but I want to just dig in a little bit more to Twain and his writing, because he busted all conventions. I mean, this was not a guy who used proper grammar. This wasn't a guy who the, the, the fancy pants in right. New York City would think, my goodness, this is the next Proust or this is our right. Proust. I mean, talk about Mark Twain as a writer and what conventions he just busted.
8: Well, what I think is so amazing is is people don't realize that for the first 60 years of his life, he was known as a funny travel writer. I mean, everyone wants to forget that. All the people that write the essays at the universities, you know, he was known for Innocence Abroad, which was a groundbreaking travel book that basically made fun of all the pretentious travelers to Europe. I mean, it is—it it <laughs> so talks about true. you know break. Oh man, I don't know if you've read it at all recently, but it's it's laugh out loud funny. I mean, after the first thirty pages, they're a little slow, and then after that, it just flies. But he does things like. He keeps torturing, like, the guides in Italy when they start getting all passionate about the statues, and Twain will say, is he dead yet? You know? <laughs> or like the boatmen uh, who are charging excessively to cross, like, the the, the uh, Sea of Galilee, he says, um, uh, Twain says, now I know why Jesus learned to walk on water.
3: That's <laughs> <laughs> so true, yeah. so true.
8: Right, so he, he was groundbreaking, and he, he, I don't know if people realize, but he started by basically being a, a travel writer, and they, he did well enough, they sent him to what was then the Sandwich Islands, which was Hawaii. And he wrote, his stuff is so irreverent, I mean, he basically makes cannibal jokes all over the place. I mean, he was kind of unpolished at the time, but um, he came back and gave these, these, basically stand-up comedy, and he'll actually, he turns to the audience and says, does anyone have a baby I can use? You know, and they know it's a cannibal joke, you yep, know, and yep. I mean, so yeah, he, he was great.
0: And by the yeah. way, as is the case with so many things, the reason what you did when telling the story to others is great comedy is always about words falling next to other words. It's music, it's timing, it's so much more. When we come back, Richard Zacks, the book Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. More after these messages. American stories. You're listening to Chris Stapleton's former band, The Steel Drivers, and as Americana as Americana gets. And nothing is more American than Mark Twain, the writing of Mark Twain, the life of Mark Twain, frankly. And we're talking to author Richard Zachs, his great new book, Chasing the Last Laugh Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round the world comedy tour. And while we were in the break, Richard, you had asked about just sharing one more story about, well, Share it with our audience where we left to off. I just tell
8: you, you know, he, yes, he's, he was known for comedy, and he, was known, and he was known a little bit as a young adult writer, but he really wanted to be a literary author, and it's to, he wanted to be like Henry James and Edith Wharton on some level. He wanted all that praise, which just today, you know, kind of cracks us up, because he got it all through Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, but he was actually trying to do I mean I think of it as kind of like John Stewart doing that movie Rosewater right. it's a little a little bit of a slow movie it's a very you know praiseworthy endeavor that he was trying to do but it's like no matter how good you are at one thing you want to be something else and the, and the other part of him that wanted to be something else is he had grown up so poor he just wanted to be as rich as Rockefeller he wanted to be rich as a Vanderbilt which kind of leads into the whole rest of the story here.
0: Indeed. And I, I find it particularly with comics, who at one point or another just want to be taken seriously. Right. And I, we're just preparing for a Tom Hanks hour coming down the road, and Tom Hanks was at this critical juncture in his life where he just didn't want to do another movie with a dog and him yeah. being a goofball. And, and if you remember, his agent got him a script, which he took for nothing, and the movie was Philadelphia. And yeah. though he worked at, you know, scale... It changed his life, and people began to take him seriously. And I think the same with Robin Williams, who did some remarkable straight acting. And it showed people that there was more than a red ball at the end of a guy's nose.
8: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, Twain, Twain pulled it off, too, but he eventually had to discover he could do it through satire. You know, through really dark humor. I mean, he couldn't do it. by his Joan of Arc. I mean, I don't think anyone of your listeners should bother reading it personally. But you know, he was trying to write this high literary thing, and he didn't pull it off. But that's fine.
0: No, and Oscar Wilde suffered the same thing. I mean, uh, no disrespect to his, his his attempt at the same thing, but we remember him for the importance of being earnest. We remember yeah. him for his humor and his and his wit and his satire.
8: Totally. Um, yeah, Mark Twain, he, was, he wrote a line, something like a classic, a book that everyone buys and no one reads. Right. You know, and everyone thinks, well, how could he do that? Because he wrote these classics. He can't mean it. Well, at the time he wrote it, he was bitter because his <laughs> books were not considered classics.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And, and luckily now they are, and he wasn't around to really ever recognize that. Now, you've studied the man's whole life, Richard. Right. What were some of the more surprising things you found out about Mark Twain?
8: Well, I would say, uh, you know, I didn't know how much he liked to drink, smoke, curse, and gamble. I mean, that's like the that's the beyond the trifecta. What do we have when it's four things? I mean, he... Superfecta.
0: Uh, that's a superfecta. Yeah, I gamble. Yeah. I love the races. So I know what a Quinella is. I know it all, Richard.
8: Okay. Superfecta, man. <laughs> yep. So he, 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 you know, I mean, and what I, I love all that about him. I mean, he was really one of the most flawed human beings, and that's what you know, gives him all that humanity, you know, that, that he liked to do all those things. And then to make it even better, he married the most proper woman. You know, it's kind of like Margaret Dumont back in the Marx Brothers right. movies or something. I yeah. mean, Livy was an heiress in a provincial town of Elmira, New York, and she thought there were ways that you had it. She, she got mad at him for, like, not bowing properly to noblemen, you know? I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's this wonderful comedy that's behind the scenes. So, oh. I think it may his maxims are and all those great one-liners are kind of like he distilled it from his life, and that's what's kind of interesting.
0: Well, and the last thing Mark Twain needed is to be married to someone like Mark Twain, and I think the same for his exactly. wife. Exactly. What an awful marriage that would have been. Tell me more about his business investments and his inventions. He, he's almost like a Ralph <laughs> Cramden type of guy. That's perfect. How did he lose all his money? <laughs>
8: Well, before we get to that, I want some of the inventions because they're just, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, he, he he invented special clamps so that toddlers couldn't kick the blankets off of their beds. Bed clamps, he thought he was going to make money on. He got a patent for that. He um, he invented a history game that had um, all these, uh, you know, all the questions who were the kings of England and all the rest of it. But he didn't take time on the board and it used push pins. So basically, it destroyed the board every time you played it, you know. He just. He was all over the map. On the other hand, he did make one invention that actually did well for him. Um, the Mark Twain scrapbook has pretty much been forgotten, but he's the first guy to think that you could do dried strips of glue on a page and then moisten them with a sponge or a rag and then put the photograph or the card or the newspaper clipping into the scrapbook. And he patented it, and it, it would have made him a ton of money, but he picked a con man to market it for him, this guy named Dan Sloat. And uh, Sloat wound up going bankrupt like three times and not paying Twain what he was supposed to get. But uh, Twain once wrote one time, when he, after he got a royalty check, he said, my blank book makes more than my written ones.
0: <laughs> hey, that's the thing about being a businessman. I mean, in the end, you've got to have great business instincts, pick your vendors right. And this right. may not have been Mark Twain's great talent.
8: No, it really wasn't. And he, the trouble is he had this moonshot enthusiasm, and he had no patience for details So he would just get so excited about some some new invention or something that he would hear about. So the way he lost his money was basically two uh, two areas. Um, The page typesetter, which was, you know, he grew up as he had been a printer's devil. He had been one of those guys that had to take those tiny bits of metal and drop them in so that the newspaper could be printed, you know, a little, each letter, individual. And he just thought if anyone could automate that, it would be worth a fortune, and he was absolutely right. The trouble was there were about 30 different main guys trying to do it, and the one he picked did not win. You know, he picked uh, James Page, and he said, "Page, uh, Page, uh, you know, he could he could talk a talk a fish to t- come out of water and take a walk with him." You know, he he just uh, a hustler. He was a hustler. Yep. You know, and at first uh, Twain called him the Shakespeare of mechanical invention, which was great. Twain would write for places like the Atlantic, and he would talk up these guys, you know. Meanwhile, he was investing in them at the same time, you
0: know. He did it later again. That's that's a little bit of a hustle there, right, as we speak. Yeah. Set the scene for me surrounding then his bankruptcy, but I think we're already getting an idea of why he went bankrupt. Uh, But he he went bankrupt in 1894. How did he react to this, and how did the country react? Because this was a very public thing.
8: Right. It was, it was, he had kept it a complete secret, and, the, and he, what, what bankrupt was actually his publishing company. He had he'd done a tricky thing. He had created his own publishing company, but he named it after his uh, nephew, Charles Webster. So not everyone knew that it was Mark Twain's own publishing company. So he had kind of insulated himself from any of the problems, and then in 1894, it went bankrupt. And there were headlines, Mark Twain fails, no joke. And, you know, he it was so humiliating because he had always sold, you know, basically he was a good talker. And he had sold himself as a brilliant businessman, as his own publisher, as, a, you know, the guy. And he still thought the page typesetter was going to, it wound up being Mergen Taylor's linotype. The linotype took over. But he, he still thought Page might win out. So this was just so unbelievably humiliating for him. And he went to Europe. He could no longer afford to live in his own home in Hartford, which is Just amazing. And rather than he had seven servants at the time, including a a black butler, Um, instead of cutting back on the servants and just living there quietly, they couldn't stand the shame in the wealthy community of doing that. So they went to Europe in 1891 and uh, they didn't they didn't move back permanently for um, for nine years.
0: How old was he when this happened, Richard?
8: Uh, he was, let's see, 1835. So he was 59, 58. He was in his late 50s.
0: And that's tough when it happens yeah. at that age. He,
8: think about it. He was he was considered, you know, the greatest funny travel writer. He was the maker of speeches. He was, you know, he was on his way. A lot of people did take his literary stuff seriously. So, and he was just he was. Very, very successful, and then this was so humiliating, and he, and he took it, you know, he tried to put a good spin on it, but there are lines in his in his private notebooks where he just talks about hell and, and, and you know, the poor house, and he actually talks about suicide. I mean, he says that, that his wife's forbidden him, but that's how dark it got for him.
0: Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about his wife, we're going to talk about what he did uh, as it relates to all the people he owed money to, and how he got himself out of this mess. It's actually a really remarkable story, Richard, and thanks for writing this and a, a side note, uh, you know what what Twain was going through when he was sixty. Uh, I think you're just dead right i mean this is that was the life expectancy of human beings right then at that time Richard oh, it,
8: was, it was just brutal to have it happen had that I mean at thirty or something, you know you roll with it and you keep you got like, time Sam Walton went bankrupt in his late thirties, I think you know yeah. the Walton stores failed, you know but yeah. yeah. But
0: 60, oof. Really rough. And by the way, you know, a couple of decades later, when Wall Street collapses, people just jump out of windows. I mean, this is, the I think, the number one cause of suicide for men is financial failure. Right. Uh, and, and we know this. And so when we come back, let's dig into the, the rest of the story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour, Go to Amazon. Order this book now. It makes a great, great gift for a father, for a reader, for a mother, for a friend. And you'll laugh a lot. I promise. You'll laugh a lot. And then you'll want to pick up the Twain catalog. And when we come back, I'm also going to tell Richard about one of my favorite Mark Twain essays about, well, someone passing gas in front of the Queen of Elizabeth. Uh, Queen Elizabeth. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. In stories and we continue our conversation with richard zacks author of chasing the last laugh mark twain's raucous and redemptive round the world comedy tour and when we left off mark twain was staring down bankruptcy he was old he was 60 tired disappointed dead broke what happens next richard
8: well, he has to do something he really didn't want to do. He has to do a round-the-world lecture tour. They called it lectures, but it really was stand-up comedy And when he did it. And um, everyone thinks of Mark Twain as loving to do, you know, it's the Hal Holbrook thing, loving to do public speeches and all the rest of it. He actually uh, dreaded it. He. Um, he thought that people he treated you know thought of him as a clown. He said, once an audience sees you stand on your head, they expect you to remain in that position." Right. And you know, right. here he was trying to become more of a literary figure, and you know he's 60s, not you know it's not. and he had to go and make people laugh. So here he is, miserable from losing all his money, and we didn 't even talk about. It. he lost his wife 's money. I mean oh. I don 't I don't know if you're married or not, but losing my wife 's money, that scares me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, luckily, my wife didn't have any money in her family, so I, I can never get jammed up like that, Richard. Oh,
8: you know, that's actually really good. Lucky his, me. He, he inherited, uh, I mean, his wife inherited the equivalent of, you know, millions of dollars. She was a coal heiress, and her father died suddenly the first year of their marriage, and he moved into a mansion thanks to that. And uh, he succeeded in basically losing <laughs> losing just about all her money. Oh, know? so he it,
0: lost his money and her money. That's just uh, brutal. Whose idea was this tour, Richard? Uh, it
8: was his idea. I mean, he he knew that the only, back then, if you think about, it, there's no radio, there's no TV, there's no internet. Obviously, there's none there's none of those things. The way you made the biggest money was people coming to a theater, and some of the highest paid people of that era were the actors. And uh, Twain knew that he could make. Uh, I mean, the highest paid were like the musicians. Um, there was um, uh, what's his name with all the hair, the Polish uh, piano. Bah. Anyhow, so. Um, Swain knew the biggest, you know, he could charge a dollar a head, and a dollar was then uh, a day's wage to come and hear him talk. So that was the way. And, and he knew that he, he couldn't just do the United States. He, he thought that he needed to, uh, you know, do the whole British Empire, wherever they spoke English. So it was this incredibly ambitious speaking tour.
0: Yeah, where did he go, and how long was he out there?
8: He was out there for um, for one year, basically, and he went to 71 different cities, he did 122 nights of performing. He would, you know, back then we forget how you travel. He was a hundred nights at sea in order to to go to all those places. He had to take, you know, a boat from the west coast to Australia and a boat from Australia to India. And um, he uh, he played small theaters in the United States and then he played a lot larger ones once 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 he left. Um, he he, the, um, he got in so much trouble with the bankruptcy that he literally had to change his tour because he was liable to be sued in the state of New York. So he had to leave New York State. And he was a little worried that anywhere in the United States they might take his, his uh, lecture, his, you know, the money from the, uh, the audience, and put it towards his debts. So he was pretty eager. to. And he never said, I'm running away. But he, he wanted to get out of the U.S. and he didn't want to return until he could know that no sheriff could, could you know, take any of the money.
0: And he was unique in his approach to, to stand-up comedy, and that is... He didn't just do punchlines and running jokes. I mean, he told funny stories. Right. You have one on page 182, uh, okay. the one about growing old. Share that with us if you could, Richard.
8: Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. He, um, he, he, it, was after, it was late one night, and he was in Australia. He was in a club in Melbourne, and he mentions that... I'm, I'm going to try and do it. Here we go. Right. Uh, my, my friend on the right and I were talking just now about growing old. I said, I thought that if I had created the human race, and then everyone laughs, you know, and someone yelled out, you did some of them. Um, (laughs) Oh, I could have done it, he says back. "Um, I was asked nothing about it, and I didn't suggest anything. But I thought if I had created the human race and had discovered that they were a kind of failure and had drowned them out, well, I would recognize that that was a good thing. (laughs) And then fortified by experience, I would start the thing on a different plan, I would have no more of that 99 years business from the Old Testament. I wouldn't let people grow that old. I would cut them off at 30 because a man's youth is the thing he loves to think about, and it's the thing that he regrets. It is the one part of his life that he most thoroughly enjoys. My friend on the right suggests that we go as far as 40 years, as he doesn't want any of his 40 years rubbed out. Well, perhaps you really might go up to 40 because then you get a perspective upon youth. And that has its values, that has its charm, but oh dear me, I never would have created age. Age has its own value, but that is to other people, not
0: to those who have it <laughs> brilliant brilliant yeah. and 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 what you 're getting there is that it 's the twain genius he 's talking about something very serious, yeah, uh, but yeah. always always using that wit. Uh, tell but, me this when he was doing the tour, richard what what, was, what were his intentions as a related to the debts he owed? Talk well, about that and Livy's uh, role in this as well. Sure. Um, but
8: maybe we could just hit a little on his, his delivery style just because I think it's so unusual. Absolutely. We, yeah. He, no, I mean, I didn't deliver that the way he would have because I think I, I, I couldn't and I'd put you to sleep. But he, he did it with, with um, a slow, slow voice and he did long pauses. And he just stood there without smiling. He never smiled. Nobody ever remembers him laughing hard at anyone else's joke. He was one of those comics that never laughed at anyone else's materials. And he put, he sometimes even put his jaw on his hand and just, just stood there. And it takes a while, but if you start reading his speeches and you read them that way, they're way funnier. Yeah. But it's just, it's just really hard to do, and really unusual. the only person I can think is like Stephen Wright. I was just you know? about
0: to say Stephen Wright because that was the thing you'd look at if you'd ever read those one-liners. I mean, they're okay, but right. you watch him deliver them; they're so deadpan and it's so slow. I mean, it's like paint drying slow. He
8: said, "Breakfast anytime," so I ordered French toast from the
0: Renaissance. Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah.
8: So Twain, Twain's delivery really is at the heart of it. So all the people, all the critics would afterwards say, God, I loved his performance, but it's, until they invent some way of recording and showing all at the same time, there'll be no, no one can ever explain why this was so great. And, and uh, we have the transcripts, a lot of the speeches, and, and that was a little bit of a challenge trying to get across. So I had to put in a lot of bits about, the newspapers would actually write in where people laughed and where he paused. And that helps a lot to try and, try and get, get it, uh,
0: well, can you imagine, Richard, trying to explain to people through a transcript the epic hits that Rodney Dangerfield did on the Johnny Carson show on yeah, paper? I mean, it's a it's a waste. Yeah, it is. Stand-up comedy,
8: really. Like, I just went to a Louis C.K. at Madison Square Garden, and it was amazing. But if I saw the transcript of that, I probably would just go, what? That's funny. That's know? what I paid for?
0: That's what yeah. I paid for?
8: Yeah, so that, that's a little bit of a challenge, but luckily I had a lot of Twain's notebooks and Twain's, um, you know, he wrote a travel, pe- travel book about this whole thing. So I had a lot of things that he meant to be read as well as the speeches, you know. So basically for the speeches, he took 30 of his best stories that he had basically been telling for the last 30 years and he, he cherry picked, um, you know, five to 10 minute bits. You know, one goes as long as 15 or so, but, and he would just, he would deliver six or seven of them every night and just stand there. <laughs> and tell these stories. And he was so unusual. I mean, they were so kind of droll and also really smart. And they were so American. They were about buying his first horse. And they were about the jumping frog. And they were about stealing a watermelon. And they played incredibly well around the world.
0: But well, when we come back, we'll close out this hour with Richard Zachs, And we'll talk about what ends up happening. I mean, does he pay off his debts? Uh, what happens to his psychological state? Does he end up being happy again, or at least something resembling happy? And we'll talk a little bit more of this whole idea of the man having to go out and make people laugh for a living. It's a hard living, folks, by the way. Think of the number of comedians who end up killing themselves. It's really, really staggering. You're out there alone, and you got to make people laugh no matter what mood you're in. And, well, no one takes you seriously. At a certain age, at a certain time in your life, Especially a guy like Twain who was looking for status, wanted to be wealthy and seen of as important. This had to be tough, even as he was succeeding and, well, trying to pay down those debts. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh. Richard Zacks is the author. Buy it on Amazon. It'll make a great, great gift. stories we continue with richard zacks and his book chasing the last laugh so mark mark twain is traveling around the world richard how did people overseas take to twain you know jerry seinfeld has written about and talked about how hard it is to take comedy from one culture to another because so much of humor has to do with cultural references and cultural knowledge how did he do overseas
8: uh, he, he was a huge hit. I mean, he did tailor a little of his, um, material. He wrote a poem about, um, you know, about Australia that was the most ridiculous poem. He, he chose the, um, platypus as the Australian national animal. And, uh, you know, he, he just, uh, he was just an enormous hit. I'd say 95% of all the critical reviews are, uh, are positive. I'd say he sold out about 95% of the venues. Uh, he just, he just did incredibly well, and he was basically treated like royalty by the wealthy people and by the the, the local artists and uh, you know that was also really nice for him and Livy and his one daughter that went with him
0: he had to love that actually I mean that's yeah. in the end what he was chasing was that respect
8: respect and that and status got, absolutely, and he got he you know what he was almost a bigger literary figure in the British Empire on some level than he was at home um, it's hard to believe, but they had uh, some some British critics had just loved Huckleberry Finn, and his early travel book, uh, he wrote one that included, you know, where British travelers tended to travel in, in Germany and in Europe, and uh, it was just, it was a huge success, and, uh, but I just want to tell you about, what I think, what's one of the best celebrity perks any traveling, you know, performer has ever gotten. Yep. Um, they set aside 35 miles of the Darjeeling Himalayan Railroad and let him use it as a personal roller coaster. Get out. Yeah, yeah, and he just had a six-seater hand car, and they just going down, I mean, these were steep hills. There were four zigzags that they had to reverse the direction of the car in order to get down. The hill was so steep, they had four horizontal loops where you go loop around through tunnels, and Twain just call, called it the absolute best day of the trip and one of the best days of his life. And uh, he just loved the idea of his wife and daughter sitting there. No one mentioned seatbelts. So he's sitting there in these open cars on canvas-back seats that are bolted down, going down the Himalayas. You know, it was just it
0: was great. And by the way, at 60, this just proves his affection for risk, Richard. He's, totally, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. shows it.
8: Yeah. So the, tour,
0: so the tour is a hit, and people are wanting to know, how's he doing on that debt-paying thing?
8: Right, and, and he's not really saying clear out because he's too smart to give him a straight answer. And basically, what happens is he goes to London to write the book, and uh, rumors start swirling that um, that he's he's living alone in poverty. And then you know one newspaper wants to beat another, and one says that Twain has died in poverty. So uh, this is when he he has, says his famous line. They sent a reporter, and the reporter would, the mission was send 500 words if Twain. Um, dying in poverty send a thousand words of twain dead right. and uh... and then he said that uh, that let me see if i can get it right here he said that um, that uh... his cousin james ross clemens was ill the report of my illness grew out of his illness the report of my death was an exaggeration <laughs> that's great and, and that's the one so anyhow so he he, um, he didn't pay it off from the trip. A lot of people, a lot of scholars have written that he paid it off from the trip. He basically made maybe half at most from the trip. And a lot of that was because Livy. he thought Livy had to stay in the best hotel everywhere and travel first class everywhere because she was an heiress. So he literally squandered a lot of his money by because um, back then performers paid their own expenses. Yeah. Um, and um, so then he had to write a travel book. So there he was in London, and he was, you know, actually, I mean, wouldn't really have time to talk about it. He had a family tragedy, so he was in an absolutely dreadful, dark mood, and he still had to write a funny travel book. And uh, But he did it, and um, the book sold sold well, and that paid off the rest of his debt. And then he he, he had, his other daughter got epilepsy right around this time, and so they stayed in Europe another year. To try and see if they could cure her, he wanted to come home with her healthy and all his debts paid. But but she, you know, you can't cure it like that. So yeah, yeah. anyhow, he comes home in October 1900 to an absolute hero's welcome, and so this story has a very happy ending. He was just acclaimed as, I mean, 1893 was basically like a depression. They call the Panic of 1893, and everyone was, I mean, I use the word hiding behind bankruptcy laws, taking advantage of bankruptcy laws. Everyone a phrase, and Mark Twain did not he paid off his debts and i'm telling you that was an inspiration to common americans to to just to everyone that he he didn't do the wall street thing he didn't do the high finance he mark twain our beloved writer paid his debts and he came home and and just was incredibly warmly embraced he just had un, unlimited opportunities to speak and to write and to do do anything he wanted and uh, he had a, a friend, H.H. H. Rogers, who was uh, a big investor and a man at um, Standard Oil, and uh, he took, when Twain finally built a, a nest egg again, he took that nest egg for Twain and he tripled it for him, just over a couple months, just because there was no such thing as insider trading in 1890s, right, right. didn't come until 1934, so anyhow, Twain... He gets literary fame. He gets, he gets all the money back. You know, things go well. Was he happy? Was Twain ever happy? Eh, I don't know. Course, of you know.
0: course. He's a, if yeah. you're a comedy writer and you're a writer, yeah. happiness is, well, that's a silly term almost of art. Right. And uh, let's talk about that stop in India. Talk about Twain's adventures there.
8: Uh, okay. Twain, it, you know, he was, he had, we hadn't really mentioned that how sick he was a lot of the trip. He was sick about uh, four to thirty, forty days out of this trip, he had um, terrible bronchitis, which might have had something to do with him smoking 20 cigars a day. But um, he uh, also had a, uh, these these boils on his body. They, call, they called them carbuncles. So he had been sick. And so when he gets to India, he's sick the first two weeks, and you just think, oh, it's just not going to be a very exciting time for him. Well, he thought India was the carnival. He just loved it. He, you know, seen the the. The snake charmers and the uh, the holy men on beds and nails, and you know the women with the midriff showing, and uh, Twain absolutely loved India, and uh, yeah, he, I mean, I don't know. Just, how did the Indian?
0: How did the Indians? Uh, Indian people uh, react to him?
8: Well, that's the thing. Um, they didn't really know who he was. You know, I mean, it's a, you know, there. I think it was only like two hundred and fifty thousand white British you know, soldiers and administrators basically governed the, the country. Right. And most of them recognized him. But, you know, Twain, you know, as much as he claimed to be bothered by it, he had a very unusual hairstyle. In that era, nobody wore their, their hair quite like that. Every every reviewer comments on the hair because it was such a bushy, curly thing. You mess. Know? It, was it was such a mess. Such a mess, yeah. right. Right. That's who I was thinking. Paderewski was another person with you know, a mess of a hair that was really popular. Um, so Twain, Twain loved India, and he, 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 you know, went sightseeing, and, you know, in, in his travel book, he, he makes fun of um, the missionaries, uh, the Christian missionaries there. He said they've had no luck converting the Hindus, but they've converted four monkeys with 11 more hopefully
0: interested. <laughs> that's, that's tough. That is tough. Yeah. And that's the thing. He pulled no punches, and and nobody back then was doing what he was doing, were they, Richard?
8: No, not really. He 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 pushed it and then he really pushed it with his, you know, satire later and Livy didn't want him to publish a lot of it, but that's who she was and, you know, he 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 did wind up you know, eventually, especially after she passed in 1904, you know, more of it came out.
0: Now, he got settled, finally. He's back in the United States. His dear friend, who's a, a a real great businessman and investor, makes a lot more money from him. Does Twain learn, or does he gamble again? What happens before this all ends?
8: Oh, man. So Twain gets back. He's now wealthy again, and uh, he can afford to live at home, buys another house. Um, and uh, of course, he invests again, and he gambles again, and um, he get, invests in a thing called plasmon, which is a, a protein powder that 's made from you know leftover dairy products, and uh, he loses like thirty thousand dollars on that, and uh, which
0: was real money back then
8: yeah, thirty times thirty it 's basically a million yep. so a guy who's finally gotten himself back in order again, I mean his whole estate when he when he passed is Depending on how you value the books, you could value it as low as two hundred thousand. So to lose thirty thousand is a lot of money. You bet. You know? uh, yeah. So he still he he can't get over the book. Bu- and and H. H Rogers, his his investor friend, tried really hard to get him to stop stop investing. You know, at one point Twain, Twain wrote him, "I've landed a big fish today." He found somebody that could um, duplicate uh, designs for uh, clothing with some kind of. You know early photocopy type right. machine, and he wanted to just sink everything into that i mean he was he was a little out of control yeah well, I,
0: and again i as i as I heard about this story and started poking around, I just kept thinking of Ralph Cramden in the sense that Ralph represented <laughs> in the honeymooners that every man who always had some big idea and his poor wife had to deal with it, and none of them ever panned out
8: right. Well, I, I, uh, when when my wife and I got married, um, I actually quoted from the honeymooners in the wedding vows. I, he was uh, Ralph had some future advice for his brother-in-law Stanley. He said, "He said, Stanley, when Agnes says I do, that's the last decision you allow her to make."
0: <laughs> I'm the king of my castle. Remember <laughs> yeah, them, that? I'm the king of my castle.
8: <laughs> my father-in-law comes out. Future father-in-law comes up to me and shakes my hand and says. Uh, You don't think you're going to get away with that stuff with my daughter, do you? I
0: said, no,
8: sir. She gave me permission to say it.
0: (laughs) Oh, you can't beat it. Well, Richard, thanks so much for doing this, and what a great project. What a great read. Chasing the Last Laugh. And, folks, go to Amazon.com and get it. It's Chasing the Last Laugh. Again, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. The writer, Richard Zacks, and the writer he's writing about, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American fiction writer and the funniest, Mark Twain. This is Our American Stories. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Hey, thanks a lot. You bet. And you can get all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done hours on everybody from Frank Sinatra to Amart Ertegen. And not many folks can say they do that kind of thing. Take it out with some great... American Music